Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Golden Skull by John Blaine. Volume 7, Chapter 16, Flying Spears Just like the old saying, Rick observed, birds of a feather flock together, a crooked Filipino, a crooked American, and a crazy Afugwe are now in conference. And what is that conference about? They are talking about who is going to win the next World Series, Chada suggested brightly. Scotty scoffed at the idea. They aren't sports lovers, Chada. They're gentlemen of culture. I think the conference is about motion pictures. My idea is that Lazada and Nast are visiting Nangolat in order to get Nufugwe opinion on whether the hero should be allowed to kiss his horse in Western movies. Tony Briati leaned on his shovel. I can't see how you could be so wrong when the evidence is clear. Isn't Lazada the assistant secretary of the interior? Isn't this the interior? I think the Fugue terraces are about to be converted to a national park under the Department of the Interior. The assistant secretary is here to discuss the hot dog concession with a local bigwig. Of course, he has his American hot dog expert with him. It's as simple as that. Scotty checked his rifle carefully, setting down the barrel to make sure it was mirror clean. They could also be talking about building a new swimming pool for Ufugwe boys and girls, but I somehow doubt that. Let's say we not worry about what they're saying to each other and worry instead about digging. Right as usual, Tony said. Let's keep at it. Maybe we'll come up with something worth talking about. They had made a good start. Now, working two by two, they excavated until the shovels rang from stone. Scraping disclosed a flat stone that probably was a lid of some kind. They resumed digging until the stone was completely exposed. Then they tried to lift it. My gosh, Rick grunted. It weighs a ton. Did it move at all? Not that I could see, Tony said. Let's dig down around the edges more and see if the stone is anchored. Further digging showed that the stone was not anchored. It probably had been set in some kind of primitive mortar, which would have to be broken before the stone could be lifted. A crowbar from the truck supplied leverage, and in a moment the stone was free. Willing hands found holds, lifted it free, and slid it to the back of the recess. Where the stone had been, there was now a yawning circular opening about the size of a manhole. Tony Briati was beside himself with excitement. He ran to the truck, rummaged in the supplies, and produced a flashlight. Then he ran back to the hole and directed the beam down. The boys crowded around to look. Rick exclaimed in disappointment. The hole was about eight feet deep and about four feet in diameter. The walls were coated in green slime, and on the bottom... There was a mixed coating of mud and slime and nothing else. I guess it was a false alarm, he said sadly. Tony paid no attention. He went to the truck again from his own crate of supplies, produced a rope and two galvanized steel buckets. He also found boots and rubber gloves, a small hand shovel, and an ordinary garden hand tool with three prongs. These tools he thrust into his belt. I'm going down, he announced. 
Rick realized that Tony was not taking for granted the apparent emptiness of the hole. He realized, too, that Tony knew much more about such caches than he did. Okay, he said. On health, keep a watch. We don't want to get caught by surprise while Tony is digging. I've been watching, Angel said. And we're also being watched by Afugues on the terraces above the village. Chada looked into the hole doubtfully. How are you going to get in and out of there, Tony? There's no ladder. The rope, Tony said. You'll have to lower me down. I'll hold the rope so I can climb down. We'll lower you, Scotty said. He took the rope and made a loop for Tony's foot, and then directed the archaeologist to sit on the edge of the hole. Tony did so, putting his foot through the loop. Then Rick, Scotty, and Chada paid out the rope while the scientist let himself slide from the edge into the hole. In a moment, the rope went slack. He was on the bottom. Rick watched while Tony drove his hunting knife into the wall of the hole and hung his flashlight on it, the beam shooting everywhere. Then Tony took his shovel from his belt and probed the soft earth carefully. It was so soft that his boots sank in up to his ankles. Presently, Tony called, I've got something here. Get a bucket. He worked with the shovel and unearthed a small mud-covered object, and then another, and then a whole series of them. Scotty tied a bucket to the rope and lowered it. Tony put the money collection in it, and Scotty drew it up. Send the rope back for me, Tony called. The three boys helped pull him up. He immediately sat on the ground with the bucket between his legs and started to clean his findings. Rick, get me the bag of cloths and brushes from my case, please. Rick did so. Tony removed most of the mud by wiping it off with his gloves, and then brushes and cloths completed the job. He held up a human jawbone inlaid with gold. His eyes sparkled. Typical, except for the gold. The human jawbone is a common Ifugwe relic. In fact, they suspend their musical instruments from human jawbones. He put it down carefully and started to work on the next object. It turned out to be a pipe. Again, typical Ifugwe work, except for the fact that it was made of gold. Rick examined it. He had seen pipes something like it before, but they were always made of clay. I thought tobacco was an American product. How come these primitive Asiatics had it? Asia used tobacco long before the Indians introduced it to the Europeans, Tony replied. But it's curious that the pipe forms are so similar. That pipe was made by a process we now use in America for very delicate castings. It's called the lost wax process. That is a funny name, Chada said, interested. Yeah, until you know about the process. The Fugue makes the pipe he wants out of wax, then coats it with clay, leaving a hole in the clay. Then he puts the clay in the fire. The clay hardens, but the wax melts and runs out. The Fugue then has a mold exactly like the pipe he made of wax. He melts the metal he chooses, which is gold in this case, and pours it into the clay. When the metal in the mold cools, he breaks off the mold, and there is his pipe. Lost wax. You're right, it fits, Scotty said. At that moment, Angel Manotoc came into the recess. I've been listening. Don't think I'm presuming, please, but could we work faster? Perhaps talk about this all later. Angel was right, of course, Tony said. 
I shouldn't have taken the time to clean those things. We'll collect them, mud and all. He went back into the bucket and worked rapidly, filling the buckets as fast as the boys could haul them up. Rick thought that the crypt probably was dry when the objects were first placed in it, but the water used to irrigate the rice terraces had seeped through between the carefully selected stones that lined the pit, bringing fine particles of dirt and gradually building up a reservoir of mud in the bottom. Most of the water seeped in and seeped out again, but the particles of soil remained. Tony suddenly gave a cry. I think I have it. He braced an object on his knee and wiped it. I think this is it. By its weight, it's thick-walled but hollow. What a find. Boys, this is incredible. This is wonderful. Tremendous. The scientist tried to place the muddy object in a bucket, but it was too large to fit. He called up. Can one of you lean away in? I'll hold it up as high as I can. Tony's excavations had taken him down another two feet, but with Chada and Scotty holding onto his legs, Rick was able to reach in and take the object from Tony's outstretched hands. It was bulky, slightly larger than a human head, and heavy, as heavy as lead, or gold. Scotty and Chada pulled Rick out of the pit. Then they lowered the rope for Tony. In a moment, he was working on the object, wiping and brushing. There was a yellow gleam to it now, and the shape was becoming more and more skull-like as the mud was removed. Tony worked rapidly, and in a few moments he held it up for them to see. It was a skull, finely executed of heavy sheet gold, and the workmanship bore the unmistakable stamp of Alta Yuan. We've succeeded, Tony said, his voice hushed. We've succeeded beyond my wildest expectations. And in that moment, Dogmeat and Angel called simultaneously. The Ifugwe warriors were advancing across the field in ominous silence. Spears ready. Nast and Lazada were nowhere in sight, but at the head of the warriors was Nangolat. Hastily, the golden artifacts were put out of sight in the recess, and Tony walked to meet the oncoming of Fugues. Scotty pulled the retractor of his rifle, and a cartridge rammed into the firing chamber. He held the rifle casually, but ready for instant action. Nangolat came closer. His face was distorted with emotion. He held the spear in his fist, ready for stabbing or throwing. When he spoke, his voice, usually moderate, was nearly a scream. I almost believed you, but now I know the truth. You are here to desecrate our temples, to rob us of precious relics of my people. He sounded like he was ready to start sobbing. Then the Ifugwe saw that the dragon had been moved. He bared his teeth with fury and his eyes were glazed, black with emotion. He was now beyond reason. Die! he screamed. Die! His hand flashed back for the throw. Scotty's rifle spoke sharply and the heavy slug caught the blade of Nangola's spear. The Ifugwe was whirled around bodily. He fell as the spear was wrenched away from him and hurled a dozen yards away. It was the signal. The Ifugwe warriors rushed, launching spears as they came. Rick pulled Tony back to the shelter of the truck. Angel, Scotty, and Chada were calmly firing at the oncoming wave. 
shooting low with deadly accuracy from the terrace above. Balaban was firing down with good effect, while Dogmeat whammed away with the shotgun. Spears bounced off the truck, the jeep, and the dragon. Now and then, one hung quivering in the wall of the recess, but the spindrift group had good shielding, and there were no casualties. The attackers were wavering now. A priest with a knot of chicken feathers in his hair leapt forward, holding a skull high. Rick guessed it was an important symbol of some kind, because he saw the warriors rally. He sighted in and his shot blasted the skull into fragments. The wave broke and retreated. Tony made a quick examination to be sure there were no casualties. Out in the meadow, several wounded Afugues, all of them with leg wounds, were being helped to safety. We can thank Nast and Lazada for this, Tony said bitterly. Do you realize how bad a position we're in? The Afugwe warriors were reforming. Nangolat, recovered from the numbing shock of Scotty's shot, stormed among them, getting them ready for another assault. But Nangolat was no longer waving a spear. He was now armed with a rifle. Chapter 17 Make or Break we can stand off their assaults, Tony said, but we can't stand sniping, not for long at any rate. Scotty grinned. Neither can Nangolat. Let's see if I can fix his wagon. They watched as Scotty wet his finger, tested the wind for direction, then set the sights on his rifle. On the other side of the road, Nangolat was exhorting his troops like a good general waving his rifle around to emphasize the words. Scotty took a classic sharpshooter's position, relaxed but braced. Rick saw him inhale and hold it. The rifle muzzle moved slowly, following Nango Lot's movements. Then suddenly the rifle spoke. Nango Lot was thrown into the midst of his warriors, while his rifle, stock shattered, flailed into the ranks and knocked two warriors down. And then Nangolat went berserk. He snatched a spear from one of his men, turned, and ran toward the defenders, screaming. A priest barked an order and two warriors dashed forward, caught him, and hauled Nangolat back by force. The old priest had sense enough to know Nangolat wouldn't make it. All right, Tony said crisply. We're trapped in here. It's not a bad place to be trapped for a while. They can't get at us without crossing open spaces. And there is enough overhang to the wall to prevent them from dropping rocks on our heads. Also, Balaban is up there to warn us if they try anything from that direction. But we can't stay here forever. We need help. The question is, how do we get help? It has to be the constabulary at Bagueo, Rick said. There isn't any other help nearby. If worse comes to worst, I suppose we could call the American ambassador and try to get him to send Air Force troops from Clark Field. By the time diplomatic protocol and military red tape got untangled, we'd be old men, if we lived to be old men. Also, you overlook one little thing, buddy. How do we get a message to them? Wait until night, and one of us could sneak out. Tony looked at his watch. We won't last that long, he said succinctly. Remember, it's still early morning. 
Rick examined the terrain between the cave and the road, noting where the station wagon Lazada had brought was parked. I'm going. Let history record that Rick Brandt carried a message to... Don't say Garcia, Chada said. That was in Cuba, says my world almanac. Carry a message to the cops. How? You create a diversion. I'll get in the jeep and make a run for it. Scotty considered this. Could work, but I'm going to do it. Nope, my idea, Rick said firmly. I'll do it. Tony was deep in thought. After all, the safety of the expedition was his responsibility. I got us into this, he said. Bad judgment is no excuse. I was certain it would all work out. It would have if Lazada had stayed at home, Chada said. I will go with Rick. He will drive and I will shoot, okay? There doesn't seem to be many alternatives, Tony agreed. Staying or going makes little difference, so far as danger is concerned. All right, Rick. We can create a diversion when they start to charge next time. If we start the truck and roll it toward the village, I'm sure we can create a little excitement. Well, that's smart, Scotty approved. The truck would just go right on across the road, across the terrace, and tumble down. It wouldn't hit the village, though. It would land on the next terrace. I doubt they'd think of that in the excitement, Tony commented. But take away the jeep and the truck, and you take away a lot of our cover from Spears. We need an earthwork fort, and fast. Come on, all hands to it. While the Ifugwe warriors argued among themselves, and Nangolat, somewhat calmed down, tried to work them up to a new pitch of excitement, the Spindrift group dug. Within a few minutes, there was a very respectable earthen berm across the front of the recess. The riflemen could lie behind it and be reasonably protected from spears. They were just in time, too. The Ifugues were steadying down, and Nangolat had a spear in his hand once more. I'll start the truck. Scotty said quickly. I'll head for them and then jump out, leaving it at first. Don't start the jeep until I'm moving. We should be able to hold them off until you return in the sky wagon. Rick suddenly realized that the steel poles for the sky wagon's pickup cable were with the gear on the truck. He reminded Scotty of the fact. I'll snatch Tony's loot right out of your hands, he said. That will take some of the heart out of them. That just make it matter, Scotty added. Then he hurried to unload the truck. Chada checked his rifle. Well, it's make it or break it time. If I make it, fine. If not, that breaks our chances down to zero. But I'll make it. Scotty ran to the truck cab, climbed in and started the engine. The Fuquays stopped their yelling to look. For a moment, they milled around uncertainly. Then Scotty threw the truck into gear and started directly toward them. Rick and Chada jumped into the jeep. Rick started the engine and pulled out the choke slightly to avoid a possible stall. Scotty leapt from the truck, leaving the unmanned vehicle to bounce across the meadow directly toward the ranks of the Ifugues. They hesitated, then scattered, and Rick stepped on the gas. He angled the jeep across the meadow, coaxing maximum speed out of it, paying no attention to ruts or bumps. From behind him came the sharp crack of Chada's rifle. Once a spear passed overhead and dug into the rice beyond. Then Rick slowed for the stone blocks at the edge of the meadow and let the jeep climb over them to the road. 
A spear clanged off the rear, and another ripped the rear seat cushion. Chada fired one shot after another, muttering to himself in Hindi. Finally, they were on the road. Rick gave the jeep all it would take. In the rearview mirror, he caught a glimpse of the Ifugues pursuing him, of the truck stopped at the edge of the meadow. Then they were around the curve of a terrace wall, free. Rick kept the accelerator to the floor, except on the worst curves. They climbed out of the valley, crossed the ridge, and emerged at their camp. Pilly Pill was waiting. They slowed long enough to yell instructions to strike the tents and cooking gear and load them into the jeep and be ready to leave on a moment's notice. Then they drove down the mountain at breakneck speed, with Chada holding on for dear life. Fortunately, they had to pass through only one gate, and the gatekeeper waved them through. They passed Igorot villages, narrowly missing chickens and pigs, and then bounced across a riverbed and into Bontoc. The trip had taken an hour. The boys pulled up in front of the road commissioner's office and ran in. De Los Santos met them. You're excited, he exclaimed. Is there something wrong? Very wrong, Rick replied. We have to use your phone. How do I get Beguayo? I will get it for you. Who do you want? The constabulary. Santos looked startled, but he cranked the phone several times, talked in Ilocano, and finally handed the phone over to Rick. The voice at the other end said, Constabulary Detachment, Corporal Alvarez. Rick said quickly, We need help at Bonaway. A party of Americans are trapped by Ifugues. Unless they get help quickly, they'll all be killed. Corporal Alvarez replied, There must be a mistake. The Ifugues are peaceful. Not anymore, Rick yelled. I just came from there. They're throwing spears. They're serious. Suddenly, the corporal was unable to understand. Rick yelled, begged, and threatened to no avail. At last, he hung up defeated. Something fishy's going on, he said. Very fishy. The corporal knew exactly what I meant. He treated it like a joke. Chada, Lizada is behind this. Santos coughed, and Rick whirled on him. What do you know about this? Nothing, I assure you. The man was lying, Rick was sure. He grabbed him by the lapels and said, You talk! Talk! My friends may lose their lives unless we can do something. Chada took a hunting knife from his belt and put the point against Santos's throat. Talk, he said gently. You have two seconds. He pushed a little bit. Santos's light brown complexion turned a dirty gray. All right, he gasped. I'm a good man, but Lazada is my boss. I do not like what he has done. Last night he stayed here, and I heard him talk to the American Nast. They laughed about how they had told the constabulary that a group of crazy Americans were up there and would be calling them a practical joke, to which they should not pay attention. They told the constabulary this both in Bagueo and Manila. And they believed him because he was the assistant secretary of the interior, Rick said bitterly. Now what? We'll never convince them. He couldn't order them not to help, so he just planted a story that would do the same thing. The only thing I could do now is call the American ambassador and see if he can go through diplomatic channels to get help. That would take too long, Chada said. It would be much too late. Santos muttered in the native dialect. What was that? Rick asked sharply. The Filipino saying, what good is hay to a dead horse? Wait, 
Rick had a quick mental image of the Filipino officer who had spoken that phrase to him before. Colonel Felix Rojas. He would believe the story. Hadn't he warned them? Get me Manila, Rick said. Quickly. Constabulary headquarters. It took time. It seemed like an hour, but it was only 15 minutes. And Colonel Felix Rojas was on the wire. Rick talked fast, telling the colonel the whole story, including Chada's espionage activities. When he had finished, Rojas said crisply, No time to get troops there. It will take planes. I will send a fighter plane first. Then will come a platoon of paratroopers, if I can get the army to move fast enough. But it will be two hours before the troopers can get there, even at best speed. The fighter will be there in an hour. Tell your friends to hold out. Return to Manila as soon as your party is safe. See no one. Talk to no one until you see me. Then the colonel rang off. An hour, Rick said. And an hour after that before the paratroopers arrive? Do you think they can hold out? They have to, Chada said flatly. Chapter 18. The Sky Wagon The Sky Wagon climbed out of the valley at Bontoc, and Rick set a course for Bonway. He took his pad and wrote a note to his friends, telling them of his conversation with Colonel Rojas and of the trick Lizada had pulled. He wrapped the note around a wrench and tied it to a piece of string. Behind him, Chada was busy with the bags for the cable pickup. He had already removed the hatch. He tied the bags in two bundles and put them in a handy place to be tossed to the spindrift group. Then he got into the seat next to Rick. We are going to pick up the stuff, even though the constabulary is coming to the rescue. Rick nodded. The plane can do nothing but scare their fugues off. That wouldn't prevent them from trying to capture the Golden Skull anyway. And even after the troops land, that stuff is too valuable and too tempting. Don't forget, Lizada is on the scene. He could take over from the troops, and they wouldn't dare say no. That is true, Chada agreed. Better we get it. What do you think about this deal with Lizada? Why does Nangola trust him? And what does he want? You told us the answers in Baguio, Rick reminded him. Lazada told Nangolat he couldn't refuse us a permit, but that he would hinder us in other ways. Nangolat thinks Lazada is his friend. Fine. Lazada must have told him that our real plans were to carry off the Golden Skull, probably to America. And why? Because Lazada wants the Fugues to massacre us after we have located the skull. That way, no witnesses. Dead men tell no stories on the witness stand. Then Lizada and Nast shoot poor Nongolat and take the stuff. Or it is something like that. Yep, really nice people, Rick commented. The sky wagon was crossing the ridge. Soon they would be back on the scene. Chada got into the rear seat, ready to throw the message and bags out through the access hatch. Wait until my signal, Rick reminded him, and then put the sky wagon into a dive. He followed the road for a distance and then saw the truck and used that for a landmark. As he flashed past the Spindrift Refuge, he saw that the Ifugwe warriors were in a semicircle around the edge of the meadow. Apparently the siege was still going on. Now to drop the message, he gauged his distance and altitude. He wanted to be sure that the message landed within reach. Get ready, he called, 
and circled until he was headed straight at the recess. When a crash into the terrace wall seemed imminent, he yelled, Now! and zoomed up into a screaming wingover. When he circled again, Tony and Scotty were reading the message. The second time around, Chada dropped the bags. Then there was a wait while Scotty and Angel set up the pickup poles. The Afugues were obviously curious, nor were they the only ones. Rick saw Lazada, Nast, and the rest of their party emerge from the village and walk to a place on the terrace just beyond the meadow. They could not be seen by anybody within the recess, but they could watch what was going on in the meadow. Scotty knew that Rick could not make pickups while flying toward the recess, so he was setting up the poles in such a way that Rick could fly parallel to the terrace wall in which the recess was located. The pickup was simple. Each bag was attached to a circle of cable about eight feet in diameter. When ready for pickup, the bag was put on the ground between the two poles, and its cable was placed on angle irons at the tops of the poles. The cable was not anchored. The only purpose of the poles was to lift the cable far enough off the ground for a convenient pickup. Soon, the first bag was in place, and Scotty and Tony retired to the recess to watch. Rick pushed a button on the control board, and the cable in the rear of the plane unwound. It was heavy woven steel, terminating in a weighted six-inch hook. Rick knew from any previous pickups the altitude it wished to fly. He circled for the run and dropped to the correct altitude and glued the plane's nose to the poles. The sky wagon passed over the poles and the hook on its cable caught the cable stretched between the poles. That cable slid off the supports. The fast-moving plane took up the slack and the bag of artifacts was jerked from the ground. A touch of the button and the electric motor reeled it in. Chada pulled the bag through the hatch, unhooked it, and put it in the luggage compartment. Then they were ready for another run. Tony had dug up enough stuff for seven bags. That was a lot of artifacts. And each time, Rick asked, Was that the one with the skull? And Chada would shake his head. The seventh bag was the skull. Rick was sure because of the clasped hands wave that Scotty gave him and because Tony did not retreat into the recess. As Rick turned for his run, he saw the sleek form of a military plane slip past. Help had finally arrived. He sighed his relief and held up his run to watch. The plane buzzed the Ifugues and dropped a container with streamers attached. An Ifugue, Rick thought it was Nangolat, ran to get it. Rick could imagine what the note said. Do not attempt further harm to the Americans or your village will be bombed, or some similar threat. Nangolat might not like it, but he would obey. Here we go, Rick said. He put the sky wagon on course and held it steady. The poles passed from his sight and there was a strong jerk on the plane. The skull was heavy. The bag is tearing, reel it in, Chada yelled. Rick pushed the button and the winch whined, then suddenly screamed as the load was released. Gone! The skull was gone! He swung in a vertical bank just in time to see Nass lift the bag from his shoulder. Rick pounded the seat beside him with helpless rage. The golden skull had fallen within the reach of Nast and Lazada. It was now in the hands of the enemy. Rick swung in a tight circle and saw them run to the station wagon and climb in. They are wasting no time, Chada said bitterly. That Lazada, he moves fast. 
We'll never see that skull again, Rick muttered. What horrible luck! The Hindu boy's face tightened with determination. We are going to get that skull back. Rick, fly to Bontoc. Open the throttle wide. Let's go. There's nothing we can do at Bontoc. Nobody there or in Maguayo either would dare question Lazada. Go to Bontoc, Chada urged. Leave this one to me, Rick. I will take over. What are you going to do? I will know when the chance comes. You and Scotty will be ready. Somehow, someplace, we will get our chance. And the Golden Skull will be us again.